This is Voices of COVID-19. I'm Brian Lucas. Thanks for joining us. When we see the numbers, the cases of coronavirus in the United States and around the world, they are overwhelming. But numbers hardly capture the reality of this fight. On the front lines, in the hospitals and emergency rooms, this is a human drama that's playing out every day, minute to minute. COVID-19 is unprecedented in our lifetimes, but our frontline healthcare workers, first responders, nurses, doctors, they're showing that they're up to the challenge. In reality, this is what they trained for. They signed up for this, and now we are benefiting from their willingness and ability to draw on that training and care for us and protect us. Joining me now to give her perspective on this pandemic and what it's been like on the front lines is Dr. Angelique Campen, an emergency medical physician at Providence St. Joseph's Medical Center in Los Angeles. Dr. Campen has been practicing emergency medicine for more than two decades, and she also serves as a clinical instructor of emergency medicine at UCLA. Dr. Campen, thank you so much for speaking with me today. You're very welcome. First of all, I was wondering if you could give me a little bit of perspective. Can you take me through a typical day as an emergency room physician in this current situation? I must say that this pandemic has affected my job in the most significant way than anything else has ever affected an emergency medicine physician. And it's not in particularly any way that you would predict Being on the West Coast, our volumes are literally half of what they normally are. However, our acuity is significantly higher. Our patients are much sicker, and the way that we manage them is a lot more burdensome. It's, you know, gowning up in our protective equipment before entering every room, whether it's a patient under investigation for coronavirus or not. We're treating every patient with what we call universal precautions and coming out, ungowning all of that personal protective equipment very carefully and diligently to make sure that we don't infect ourselves, infect the next patient, infect those that we work with. So it's a very different way of practicing than I was practicing last year. It seems to me that the speed at which somebody can take a real big downturn is fairly rapid. Would you agree with that? How did you feel when you started to see the way people were presenting and how quickly their their condition could deteriorate? When people deteriorate from this, it's not so much from the coronavirus infection in and of itself, It is from the secondary opportunistic infections that set in because of what coronavirus does to your body. And we didn't realize this off the bat. That is why you see, and mostly I'm talking about the healthy, younger population that you're hearing stories about, you know, this fit 35-year-old woman who gets coronavirus and then five or six days into it, has shortness of breath and has to be hospitalized or even put on a ventilator. And the reason that that happens is, especially in the younger, healthier, fit people, when coronavirus infects you, it really revs up your immune system and uses up all your infection-fighting cells and makes your white blood cell count, which are the cells in your blood that fight infection, very, very low. Normally in a typical infection, when I do a blood test on you and I check your white blood cell count, 
If you have an infection, your white blood cell count will be very high. It's a sign that you're fighting off an infection. Well, coronavirus lowers that. And so it is then three, four, five, six days into the illness when you have very, very low white blood cell count and you cannot fight infection that pneumonia can set in. A secondary bacterial infection can swoop in and you cannot fight it. And this is what's making people sick. People come in with the classic inflammation in their lungs, diffuse pneumonias. They get sick within hours in front of your eyes. What is the learning curve on something like this as it's rolling out in real time? Because you obviously have patients that you're dealing with immediately, and you don't know all the facts right away. How does that learning curve happen? This is why I think it's been so frustrating to physicians, because as a physician, we have the answers. We know what to do, how to treat illness. But in a case like this, we don't have the answers, and there's nowhere we can find it or look it up. It's, it's simply evolving, and that is what makes doctors very uncomfortable when they don't have all the answers. Unlike influenza that we have studied for years and years and years, and we know how to treat it, we know how it's going to affect people, this was something totally new. We didn't know how it would affect people. We didn't know how specifically it was spread, how the different symptoms that presented in people, why some people would get really sick and some people would not. And there's still a lot we don't know about it. That's what has made it so difficult as a physician to treat, but also so scary for the lay public. I'm sure that professionally this has been a real challenge for you. Is there an emotional side to this that maybe catches you even a little? I mean, you've been at this for 20 plus years. Do emotions still creep in when you're dealing with something that is new and uncertain and you're seeing the human toll of it before your eyes? Definitely. There's two sides to that. Now, mind you, every emergency room physician has trained their career for times like this. And that's what we do is we rush into trauma or infection to address it. However, we have not been faced with a time where, where we don't have all the answers. There's the flip side where you don't know if you're bringing it home to your family, how really you need to protect yourself. There was really a learning curve in the beginning of whether you wear a simple mask, whether you have to wear an N95 mask, whether you have to wear a contained respirator. We have quickly come to those decisions now, and I do feel very safe now in the way that I'm handling patients, that I'm not bringing it home to my family, that I can advise people how to stay safe. But there was a time there where there was really unknown. Can you talk about that personal protective equipment and having to work with that all day and do an entire shift in that? It's got to be uncomfortable, but also I would think working all day with that kind of restriction would be emotionally draining as well. What's that like? Well, I have to say it's starting to get really old and we can't let down our guard. You have to continue to be as vigilant as we were in the beginning about putting it on and taking it off so carefully. It's pretty much covering every part of your body and either wearing an N95 mask all the time or a complete, it's almost like a helmet. It's called a capper, a contained air purifying respirator. And I put that on 
Now you can imagine it's difficult to speak to patients. It kind of muffles your voice. It's difficult to hear people. You feel very isolated. It takes away the more humanistic part of medicine where I can hold someone's hand or I can touch their arm and show them my empathy and so forth. That has been the most difficult part. I also worry that because it is such a process to gown up and get into a patient room that we are isolating our patients a little more rather than go in three or four times an hour to check on them. The nurse may go in a couple times. So to try to limit that happening, we're turning to other ways of staying connected to the patients. Like for example, we have iPads now in all of the patient care rooms so that we can still look at them, talk to them as many times as we need without actually having to put on all the protective equipment each time we go into the room. So that's been really helpful. The Isolation in general of this disease is something that is taking a toll on people. You know, you can't have family visitors, you can't have visitors at all. And I hadn't thought about the idea that even, you know, nurse, nurses checking in on you and your doctor coming in more regularly, that adds to that as well. It is interesting the way there's had to be a lot of creativity and innovation trying to work around these very human needs that people have. Definitely. We've really had to think outside the box. One thing that comes to mind with that is when a patient is on medication that goes through an IV pump, each time the medicine has to be changed or has to be refilled or so forth, a nurse would have to gown up with all the protective equipment, go into the room simply to change the medication on the pump, which may happen every hour. Maybe even, you know, a medicine may only run over 20 minutes. Well, someone figured out how to actually run the lines really long and put the IV pumps outside of the room so that that could help reserve some of our protective equipment that, you know, we need to kind of ration. To what extent as a physician are you able to separate yourself from the political landscape around what is happening and, you know, the rollout and the conflict between you know federal response, state response, things like that, and also the policies of separation and isolation? You've obviously seen the impact of you know, California being fairly proactive and, and hopefully flattening the curve a little bit. Has this been difficult for you to watch the response and the maybe lack of coordination of this response across the country? It has been very frustrating to see different levels of response, seeing uncoordinated efforts, being really in the middle of being not prepared when we hear about you know, not having enough of certain protective equipment or masks or ventilators, that's very scary and very frustrating. We pretty much sacrificed our economy to save the healthcare system. And it's an interesting discussion of how many more people will be harmed by one than the other. I mentioned to you that our ERs are half volume. I have started to become worried where are all those heart attacks and strokes that I was seeing? Where are they? I'm worried that people are going the opposite way and not coming to the emergency department out of fear of this and end up being in a worse state later. We are seeing a lot more of out-of-the-hospital cardiac arrests, which I wonder if it's because 
They had chest pain and, and opted not to come to the emergency department. There's a lot of interesting discussions that go around how we've handled this. Fortunately, we've been very proactive in California and we are in a very different situation than a state like New York is. I am not afraid that we're not going to have enough resources. I feel very confident that we have enough ICU beds and we have enough ventilators and we have the ability to care for people. And we're not going to see that as big of a surge as New York did. I attribute that to not just the way our city is set up. We are a lot more spread out than New York City is, but that the community really listened to the warnings and we had people stay home very early. And I think everything we did was very effective. Are there things that you've seen that have inspired you in any way? Are there any things that you're taking hope from, from what you're seeing around this? I do feel great about the support that we're seeing from the community, recognizing the sacrifice that first responders, all first responders, be it firemen, police, nurses, EMTs, doctors, all of us on the front line do every day, not just in a pandemic. And it feels really good to be recognized for that. So that's been a wonderful thing. But also the camaraderie that's really been cemented at work, taking care of each other. We really have to be a team when we're taking care of patients. If it's a, a nurse and I going in the room together, we check each other that we, we have all the right protective equipment on, everything is tied up correctly. When we're in a room with a critical patient and we're doing a very high-risk procedure like intubating them, putting them on a ventilator, pointing to other people in the room and saying, okay, you need to leave because you don't need to expose yourself, things like that has really shown how much we depend on each other in, in the healthcare setting. Are there elements of this story that you feel have not received enough attention? I saw you posted something about vaping. I haven't seen anything, anybody talking about risks from smoking or vaping or things like that. So it's not been proven scientifically, but I have found that the younger patients that you would not expect to end up on a ventilator are the ones that have been smoking or vaping. And just before this, that I, I would call it an epidemic, the vaping epidemic that, that we were seeing. So I think that did play a significant role in this virus, which is primarily a respiratory virus in determining who's going to have a, a more severe outcome than another. I think if you ask any frontline healthcare professional, they will say the same thing, that the ones that do more poorly, that have worse outcomes are definitely people that, that smoke or vape. I've also been a little concerned that in this scramble to take care of the here and now, there's not a lot of talk about how we're going to deal with this next week or next month or next year. Because really, we've responded to the emergency. We've kind of contained what we need to contain right now. 
But in order to really overcome this virus, 60% of our population has to either get infected, develop antibodies, get a vaccine. And, and we're not going to have a vaccine right now. I could make a vaccine, and I'm not an immunologist, I could make a vaccine next week. It's not the creation of it that is the difficult part. It's studying the effects it has on the immune system over time. So that's why you're not seeing any talk about an immediate vaccine, only the the trials that they're getting started. We're not going to see a vaccine for 12 to 14 more months. So I really don't know how we're going to come out of this, except to slowly allow those of us with fewer risk factors to go ahead and get the illness and develop antibodies. That's the only way we're going to get, we're going to protect the community and get what's called herd immunity. The end game or the exit game of all of this is something that is very uncertain for a lot of us and maybe is one of the reasons that the separation is starting to get old for people. Does it concern you when you see people saying, hey, it's, let's set a date when we're going to reopen? Are you worried about a second resurgence of this? It is definitely a possibility if we don't manage it responsibly. And I, and I can understand how people are getting antsy or getting tired or you know, the social isolation, the economic hardship of not going to work. I can see how that would wear on you after a couple of months, but it has to be properly planned. Otherwise, if we simply just all suddenly come out of our homes, we are going to get right back into it and be right back at the starting line. If I and my family are tired of separating, I can't imagine how tired you are of putting on PPE every day. Are you doing okay? Are you, I mean, how do you unwind and how do you recover from this? It's kind of interesting. I was talking to my colleagues the other day about this. It's a regular discussion that people have. They're feeling isolated. They're so bored at home. They've organized every closet. They have so much time on their hands at home. I have been the opposite. But our spirits have stayed high, probably because we haven't been hit as hard as the East Coast. We have stayed healthy and safe. And like I said before, the support of the community for healthcare has just been amazing. At work, not wanting to take off all your protective equipment and go down to the cafeteria to get food in the middle of your 10-hour shift, having the community have a constant stream of food and notes of encouragement and so forth is fantastic. And that really helps. Emergency medicine workers are often taken for granted, but it is really nice to be valued and appreciated for you know, being there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for everybody and anybody that needs help. It's nice to have that be recognized. Have you had moments of victory? Can you think of any moments where you left and you thought, we're getting ahead of this? Or is it really just every day is, a, is just an adventure and you don't really know where you are on this scale? Most of the victories that I've felt have been in following up my patients, patients that I've taken care of in the ER and have been so sick and thinking that I'm really worried about this person, I'm concerned that they're not going to recover from this. And then finding out, you know, a week later that they came off of the ventilator, that they are recovering. I love to hear those stories. Those are great stories. 
you know, I've trained my whole career for times like this. I feel very lucky that I can do something, that I can help. I know a lot of people feel helpless, that they wish they could do something to improve what's going on in the world. I feel lucky that I have the education and ability to do it. Well, we are lucky that there are people like you that are willing to do that and willing to step up. And I always marvel at people who end up someplace that's very difficult, but it seems like it's just well-suited that they're there and that we're lucky that they found that path. So thank you for finding that path and, and putting yourself out there. I really appreciate that, and I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me today about it. You are very welcome. Stay safe, stay calm, and spread this knowledge, not the virus. Voices of COVID-19 is an attempt to document the thoughts and feelings of people who are perhaps outside the limelight to get personal reflections on how a pandemic impacts all of our lives. Please subscribe to this podcast and join us for our next episode, where we'll hear the perspective of a musician dealing with social distancing. What's it like when your shows are canceled and your creative outlet is cut off and you're looking at an uncertain path forward even at a time when we're seeing just how valuable art and music are to our lives? If you know of someone who might make a good guest on this podcast, please send them to me at brian at truevoicecommunications.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay separate. And we'll get through this together. Mm-hmm.